did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to another episode of Year of Polygamy. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I am happy to be bringing on my good friend, Brian Buchanan. Say hello, Brian. Hello, everybody. It's not like you don't get to hear from me enough, but I'm back. Now, Brian and I are spending most of our time podcasting for the Sunstone Mormon History podcast. So if you are not enjoying the hiatus for Year of Polygamy, there's big gaps in between. Just roll on over to sunstone.org where Brian and I share the delightful tales of Mormonism. You can binge all sorts of fun things so far. Well, we were just talking earlier because we're trying to do a sort of chronological order like I did with Year of Polygamy, only on a broader sense, not just polygamy focused. And I just, it's taking all that I have to wait to get to the Utah period because that's my favorite part. We're in Nauvoo right now. We skipped over Missouri pretty quickly. Sorry about that. We might retroactively go back and put some If you stuff love in. Missouri, you're not going to be real happy with us. <laughs> but if you love Utah and New Mormon history, it, we've got good stuff coming. But anyway, I brought Brian on here because one of the questions I get asked all the time, and I talked about this on TikTok. Yes, I have a TikTok. You can follow me on TikTok if you want to see me do stupid videos. Or from BYU. We, yeah, Brian and I, uh, we're such Mormon nerds that we... Um, have a lot of fun videos, deep deep dives into Mormon history. But one of the things that people ask me a lot is, how accurate is the book, The 19th Wife? Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I get asked that all the time. A lot of people say it's, you know, the main thing to read about polygamy, which I don't know if that's true, but it's absolutely a fascinating book. And in the original 100 episodes of Year of Polygamy, I don't think I really talked about it very much, did I? I don't think so. Well, today that is going to change. Brian and I are going to talk about Anna Eliza Young, and we are going to also talk more. Hopefully, Joe Geisner wants to come on and talk about her parents, Chauncey and um, Eliza. So we're going to do that too. But right now, Brian, we're just going to sort of dig into the book, how accurate it is, talk about Anna, Anna Eliza's life, Anna Eliza's life. I want to keep calling her Anna. It's Anne. Um, yeah, so why don't we just get into it? Do you want to say anything before we get into the history? She led a pretty interesting life. I, you know, we, you mentioned Joe Geisner, and he did, he just recently edited that book, Writing Mormon History, which tells the backstories, which I always think is fascinating because authors and books, a lot of times what's going on behind the scenes is as entertaining, if not more so, than what's in their book. And in her case, that's definitely true. Yeah, and and like I said, this this book has been dismissed, I would say, by a lot of faithful Mormon historians for so long because one of the main things right out the gate is she's not the 19th wife. So her title alone dismisses, it, it sort of gives a lot of her critics everything they need to dismiss her because it seems inaccurate. But we're going to kind of talk about that and why that she, you know, made the title that way and things like that. But let's get into it. Brian, where do we want to start? Well, just kind of a general comment about where I think the distrust and dislike of her comes from. The 1870s, well, I mean, if you back up, anti-Mormon books, quote-unquote, which both of us don't really love that title, but, you know, things that have historically been labeled anti-Mormon, those had always sold well. The Mormons are out in Utah, they're wild, they're exotic, there's polygamy, I mean, this this, this copyrights itself. And so that market had always been there. But then when you get to the 1870s, you really have an explosion. That's when the Stenhouses are writing. And so a national audience is getting a very healthy dose 
of books by former disenchanted Mormons. And she fits right in the middle of that. And that's when anti-polygamy legislation is starting to heat up. And so that's when the Mormon persecution, you know, kind of born in Missouri, really has a resurgence. And Mormons, and honestly, for good reason, are feeling attacked. And so all these books that are published during these times, these kind of expose-style books, really do cause a lot of animus towards them among the Mormons. And what what is the first, is it Bennett's book that's the first real expose on Mormonism? Well, I mean, even if you go back that? further, you go Mormonism Unveiled, 1834. Um, so just four years after the church is officially organized, you already have a book based largely on the Hurlbut materials. And so as long as there's been Mormons, there's been people who like to write books about them pro-Amcon. So that, so that's kind of the problem is a lot of these narratives get lumped into exposés, which means we don't pay attention to them. And and when I was researching Year of Polygamy, I tried to stay with as many faithful sources as possible. In fact, I stayed mostly with faithful sources. It was really important to me. If you know the politics of Mormon history, it's very easy. If you If you don't use a faithful source, faithful Mormons will dismiss you out the gate. And I just felt like there was enough faithful sources to sort of tell the story. But as I've gone along, I've started delving into other sources. Uh, you know, I've learned a lot better how to research and things like that. And so I've looked at these exposés and I got to say, Brian, I am disappointed in some of our colleagues, some of these great Mormon historians that dismiss this stuff because they will just throw it away altogether. Mm. And I don't think a uh, narrative, even if it's angry, should be thrown out altogether. I mean, as we're going to talk about, she has a lot of important things that she says here. There's a, some things she says that are wrong, but every time Brigham Young gets something wrong, we don't go, that's it. Yep. We can't listen to his sources, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly a, a differing standard. I mean, Brigham Young sent people on an expedition to find the Bear Lake monster, and we still take what he says as history. Spoiler alert, they found it, but <laughs> you didn't hear that from us. They, they found it. They keep him in an underground, what's it called, aquarium. What's funny is it answered to Nessie when they got there, which I was like, wow, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. When, you know, one thing that is hard about it is it does require a lot of work to assess these sources like this, because they do throw in a lot of crazy crap, honestly. I mean, there is this kind of yellow journalism streak that goes throughout them. I Bennett, History of the Saints. You know, at the same time, you have clearly he knew what was going on with polygamy in Nauvoo to some degree, which is Lindsay's talked about here and we've talked about on the History Podcast. That's It's certainly debatable the degree to it, but he certainly knew things. But at the same time, you have the crazy crap about the orders and you know all this other stuff that is clearly just nonsense written to sell books. So it does take some work because you have to divide between the craziness and the firsthand information that they do have. And because it does take work and because it is difficult, it is easier to just say, I don't even want to deal with them. Yeah, and I th- and I do think the field is changing. I think people are starting to pay, even faithful s- scholars are starting to pay more attention to what other people said. I mean, I, I am blanking on it now, but I think I talked about it on the Sunstone History Podcast. I was reading an, an expose from the anti-polygamy 
group in Utah for Mormon suffrage. And the woman was that wrote it, she was like this prominent suffragist. Uh, she was a very highly educated, well-respected woman. And people have dismissed her stuff as anti-Mormon. But when I read it, I was like, oh, she actually knows what she's talking about. And she's pretty articulate. And just because it is Victorian, like you said, uh, some people don't want to believe it. So anyway, yeah, I, I'm frustrated by that. I'm frustrated by my own bias uh, with Anne because I I didn't really take her book seriously for a long time. And so we're going to do that today. So why don't we dig into, uh, do, should we do our life first? Sure. So yeah, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll get her up to where the book starts. So she's born in, actually in Nauvoo, September 13th, 1844. So if you think about what's going on at that time, Joseph Smith has died. Um, the fateful meeting where Brigham Young and Sidney Riggins smacked down, that's just a month earlier. So she's born at a very important crossroads in Mormon history. She is the last child in the family, spoiler alert, to her mom, at least. She has three older brothers. She has an older sister. The sister doesn't make it to adulthood, so she grows up in a family of boys. And a lot of the course of her life kind of follows the course of her father's life. So Chauncey Webb, who Joe will, will talk about more, was a carriage maker. So you have to put yourself back in that time. That guy's never going to be out of work. So he uh, seems to do pretty well. Um, her mother has a pretty wild childhood. Um, her name is Eliza, which is where Anne gets her middle name. Um, she ends up being a school teacher, meets Chauncey. They were both pretty early converts to Mormonism. So by the time of Nauvoo, you know, they're relatively seasoned veterans of Mormonism. But then, not very long after Anne Eliza's born, Chauncey marries a plural wife. And this, because she's around this, obviously she will have a long experience growing up firsthand living in polygamy. And we talked about, you know, part of the, the difficulty with these sources is that Victorian language. And like everyone writing at that time, her, her writing is too. So listen to how she describes her mother's trial experiencing polygamy. Quote, I was consecrated to sorrow by the baptism of my mother's tears upon my baby brow. My baby hands wiped away tears, my baby fingers stroked a cheek furrowed by them, and my baby eyes never saw beyond the mist in hers. I came to her when the greatest misery of her life was about to fall on her. And you can just feel like it's all covered in lace, everything she says. But <laughs> Lace and tears, her yeah, mother's tears. But the thing is, is like it, it, you have to remember, because our writing is so different now, we don't write like this anymore, but everyone wrote like this. I, and I actually think it, it's kind of a beautiful metaphor. I mean, people would say it's exaggerated, but I think, I mean, there is something to be said. She's obviously writing about not her memories, but what she would have understood at the time, it's right? the feeling of it's it. It's the feeling of it. Yeah. And that that's going to carry, like you said, she has such an important part because she's born in Nauvoo. She comes across the plains and then she's sort of thrust into the hierarchy pretty, pretty soon. Mm -hmm. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. So, the, you know, everyone leaves Nauvoo. Well, not everyone, but the Brigham folks leave Nauvoo. And rather than going to winter quarters, they, her and her mother and Chauncey, her father, end up in Missouri fairly close by while the second wife lives there in winter quarters. So even though we're not in, quote unquote, civilization anymore, um, they're still living apart. So you can already see it, there's some tensions there. Um, and she remembers the, these this kind of 
stopover period very happily. She said later, quote, it is indeed the re- only really happy time I can recollect. Now, she's only two at the time. So again, this is more kind of feeling. We're not trying to make this a scientific narrative here. But again, that's what I want to point out is her book is an exit narrative. And that's what we need to look at it. When when yeah. we're looking at like FLDS exit narratives right now, you know, there are a bunch of people that have written books about growing up in the FLDS, marrying, you know, Rule and Jeffs or whatever. We read it and we go, oh, how sad. Look at how much they went through. We don't yeah. go, that didn't happen. But some of the FLDS people who read it say that. Rulins didn't wear size 12 shoes. He had size 13 shoes. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of stuff. So when we're looking at her story, that's, I think, the the proper context for it is someone who's writing about their feelings about what happened, how they felt about what happened. And then obviously once she she grows up and it's, I mean, as you think about it, like if you think back to your own childhood memories, the chances that you're remembering them, quote unquote, accurately are not great. You remember how it felt to be there. You know, you may remember being in a certain place, and in reality, it was a totally different place. But, you know, that's that's not how your memory worked at that point, and we shouldn't expect it to. And, and she should be given that same kind of benefit of the doubt. So as time comes for everyone to start making the push then to Utah, they thought the family was going to go with that initial company, but Brigham Young... And this is kind of a foretaste of of what's coming. He instructs Chauncey to stay back because, as we said, he's a carriage maker. So he's building wagons for all these people moving out. And so they stick around. If you remember how it works, Brigham Young, the initial company, comes to Utah, gets things going. Another big company comes after them. But then Brigham and the other leaders come back to winter quarters, stay there. First presidency is reorganized. And then that spring... Then another massive company comes west, and that's when the Webb family actually makes it to Utah. And so, and again, she's still young when this yeah, is happening. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. She's, she's still um, only – she won't even be four until after they get to Utah. But I've been thinking a lot about this, what it means to be a young, impressionable child going through the sort of trauma of overland travel. Because even if you had a good company and a good experience, we're not talking like handcart experiences with, with her company. But it still had to have been really strange and formative and interesting. Yeah, you're, le- you're used to living in a house and a pretty normal routine. And it's like, okay, we're going to go walk through someplace we've never been before. And who knows what's going to happen today. So, yeah, as a kid, it would have been, you know, mostly adventure but she had to have kind of picked up on the stresses and everything going on. Remember, she is living in a polygamous family. So there's, like we mentioned, there's there's clear hints that, not surprisingly, it's early polygamy. They're still, they haven't have a track record of how to do this yet. So their family's working through it. In the early Utah period, later, Annaliza will write very clearly that her mom contemplates suicide at points. Because it's just so difficult, and it's the thoughts of Annaliza, her her one surviving daughter, that keeps her from it. And she tells a very poignant story. One time, her mother, the first wife, asked the second wife, Elizabeth, to tone down the PDA with Chauncey. And Elizabeth responds immediately, do you think I have no trials? Annaliza gets it. She immediately says, God, forgive me and help us both. I know you have. So she she clearly is picking up on the struggles of her mother's working through how to make this family life work. And as she grows older, 
she'll comment in her, her narratives about the big events happening around her. So obviously the Reformation is very impactful, and then Mountain Meadows. And I thought it was really interesting how she interpreted that. She said, quote, Young as I was, I felt the mystery that shrouded the whole transaction, and I knew instinctively, as did many others, that something was hidden from the mass of the people by their leaders, which it was not deemed prudent to reveal. But the terrible truth was not then suspected by the faithful saints. So she's she's pretty insightful. Like she she can see the deeper threads of what's going on around her i think and i also think she's t- telling this as a later recollection which which means at the time i think it backs up what we know about the massacre people people sometimes think that the massacre was a secret and no one knew about it for a while that's not true people knew about it you can't you know murder 120 very wealthy white immigrants and not have anyone say anything about it and this is why you know it was blamed on the indians and things like that so at the time, it would have been understood that there was a horrible Indian massacre. But we do know that in Salt Lake City, there was a lot of gossip. And right from the get-go, people like John D. Lee start getting blamed for it. Well, Brigham Young, I say what you want, Brigham Young had his thumb on the pulse of his kingdom. And he knew what was going on. And those around him in his inner circle were, to some degree, informed also by him what was going on. So, And then you know, it gets out from there. So yeah, people, people knew what was up. Um, during the same period, her father Chauncey serves a mission to England and then comes back and boom, 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 marries three wives right at once. And this is really where kind of the, the chaotic dynamics of their household intensify. So when it was just her mother and the second wife, Elizabeth, it was more or less peaceful. But once he marries three more wives, then it really starts to get interesting. And in fact, and didn't he marry them during the Reformation part? It was, um, yes. I'm trying to remember the year exactly. Yeah, it's or, right around that time when plural marriage um, rhetoric really bumps up. A lot of marriages are taking place. And she's about a young teenager at this point. She, she yeah, she's um, not even that. She, well, yeah, she's like, yeah, 12, 13 ish. Yeah. So, yeah, really, really young, but old enough that she can really start to pick up on what's going on. And there's always the, you know, this wife. Um, wants uh, a bigger house or, you know, her room, you know, all the, the, the dynamics and she's right in the middle of it and, and sees what's going on. Then in 1860, so if you're keeping track here, that makes her 16. She goes to the endowment house there in Salt Lake and is endowed. And we've talked about this before, especially outside of Utah, there are all sorts of exotic tales. This is the, the hole in the floor where they dump all the murdered virgins and, uh, you know, speak of everyone outside of Mormonism is writing in this crazy, overblown language. So this is just kind of what you did. And so she goes in there. And so for any listeners who have experienced the endowment, you won't really identify with the hole in the floor with all the dead bodies in it. But I'm guessing you'll probably identify with how Annalisa actually described it. She said, I was perfectly exhausted by what I had passed through and quite dissatisfied. It was so different from what I expected that I was saddened and disappointed by it all. My feelings of the morning had undergone a most radical change. I was no longer buoyed up by the enthusiasm of religious fervor. That had died away. And I was as hopeless and apathetic as I had before been eager and buoyant. It's a Hmm. really interesting take on that. Not one that you often hear. Yeah, no. Then or now. Yeah, I think it's interesting. And she's only 16. 
So in reading that, she doesn't, I don't think she really sees it as out of the ordinary. But at that point, especially for a woman, unless you are getting married, to be endowed at that age, I think is pretty unusual. But she does say that after that is when she noticed Brigham Young starting to take notice of her. So I have to wonder if perhaps she didn't get in doubt at Brigham Young's, if not instruction, at least polite. Well, and she is absolutely a gorgeous woman. Yeah. Um, We know that from all accounts, I think. Um, Her biographer, Irving Wallace, it's always weird when you read biographers' descriptions of the women they're talking about and they get a little pervy. Irving gets into that territory yeah, a little bit. And you're like, yeah. really? Did you have to do that? Maybe don't do that. That's that's weird. So yeah, it seems like everybody agrees she was she was beautiful. So and so after that she's endowed. She's starting to get closer to marriageable age at the time. So she starts hanging out a lot with this guy, Finley Free. Great name. She is the brother of Emmeline Free, who was Brigham Young's probable favorite wife at the time you know it also changed. Lottoman addict right yeah uh they i'm trying to remember doesn't one of the family doesn't one of her sisters marry john d lee oh yeah that's the whole trial of the you know john d lee wanted to marry emmeline that's right yes, and brigham yes, yes. said no let me marry emmeline <laughs> you can have her sister <laughs> yeah i've had a revelation that I, you can't marry two of the same. Yeah, and style. if you want to listen to mine and jo- uh, Brian's Sunstone podcast about John D. Lee, uh, before they were famous, we talk a lot about the sex lives of Emmeline and her sister and John D. Lee and Brigham Young. It's uh, from their diaries. The Free family, they were interesting folks. So, But Brigham, again, he's got his finger on the, the pulse here. He sees that, especially because it's his, his wife's brother that's hanging out with her, uh, has a talk with Finley and tells him to knock it off, which bugs Analyza. And then she tells the story of a really awkward carriage ride with Brigham. And in her account, Brigham tells her, quote, I heard you say you wouldn't marry me if I wanted you to ever so much. A little weird to hear that from the prophet when you're, you know, 16. So, uh not super cool. And I, I would guess this is probably one of those elements where people would be tempted to discount this and be like, come on, that didn't happen. But uh, we've talked about it. There's enough, enough patterns. We've talked about enough closed door meetings and Nauvoo and things that... Uh, Brigham yeah. definitely had a style and this fits that style. <laughs> Not a smooth style, but it was a style. It was. It was sort of a grid system style. It worked. <laughs> It worked on paper. Make sure there's enough room for the carriages to turn around. So then the next chapter of her life begins when the Salt Lake Theater is completed. And this is, there's so many of these cases where these great buildings from the past got torn down. And damn it, I want to see But you can still see the big uh, curtain at the DUP. They hang it up. It's really beautiful. Thankfully, they saved a piece. I mean, they're out here in the desert. I mean, it's a pretty rough life. And they build this just amazing looking building. There's pictures of it and it's it's something. It seated 1,500 people, which, geez, in Utah, that was a good portion of your Salt Lake population. It's, it's downtown, if you think kind of where the Harmons is there. 
at State and First South. Um, it was right there and torn down in 1928. So they finished this theater and then, man alive, Mormons, they love their Disney, they love their singing, they love their acting. So they're putting plays on just one right after another. And I thought it was interesting, Brigham, when they start, he counsels them, don't do do comedies. I want to I want to laugh. I don't want to do tragedies. He say apparently told him there is enough tragedy in everyday life. And I have to think in the background all of his wives are like preach, brother. <laughs> give give me a laugh here, man. I got to live with Brigham. So, so Analyza joins the cast in the second season. Her first role on Christmas Day 1862, she's in Patty Miles Boy or Irish Mischief. Wouldn't you want to go back in time and see that? Probably so racist. It was mostly English actors. <laughs> Yeah, I imagine it was probably, it, it's really interesting when you read the reviews of outsiders that come through. They they all said the theater was pretty impressive and uh, they always didn't, they didn't always love the quality of acting or the plays they put on. But. Well, didn't they have, like Oscar Wilde came and visited. Oh, they had they, like the famous phrenologist, what, what was his name? Jenny Lind came through. Yeah. I mean, they had anyone who was anyone that was coming through the area would play there because it really was quite the building and they did have a reputation of hosting pretty and is that where madame petrini i think so brigham young's cross-dressing son yeah saying a beautiful falsetto yes yeah it was was quite the place to be and it was hopping there so that she she's in patty miles boy christmas day within the next week she's in two more different productions so i mean they were cranking them out and it seems like it was a pretty fun place to be. I mean, you think about it. Uh, in a in a growing young place, there's not a whole lot of opportunities for organized entertainment. So I would think she was like, yes, I get to go do something fun. Sign me up. But as part of this, she has to, you know, go back and forth between home and the theater. Brigham sees that. He's like, boy, that's a lot of traveling. That's going to be hard. Why don't you just stay at the Lion House during the week? Dun, dun, dun. And Eliza, I'm guessing probably at that point still doesn't quite, I don't know, maybe she understands what's going on. but um, And so she does. And we get a couple really fun snippets of what life was like at the Lion House. My favorite one was in the morning, they ring the be- breakfast bell and his daughters would all start yelling, bread and butter and peach sauce, because they had the same thing every damn day and they were so sick of it. That sounds so, I mean, this is going to be weird to say, and I don't mean this to be offensive to faithful Mormons about their history, but once you spent time in prophets' homes, like with the Jeffs family, Warren Jeffs' family, to see how systematized the meals become, it really is like a cafeteria. We're not doing anything fancy. (laughs) No ketchup. Yeah, you can see. And wasn't it Aunt Twist that cooked in the lighthouse, in the lighthouse, in the lion house? Yeah. Yeah, she was uh, Brigham Young's wife who was basically just married to be the family cook. And she that was what she did all day long, day in, day out. Over a fire. Over a fire. And yeah. peach sauce. I want some peach sauce. That I sounds know, I was nice. Like, I'm sure it got boring after a while, but man, I'd, I'd take a little of that every morning. Homemade butter and <laughs> I know. bread and peach <laughs> Made sauce. Made from the poor plural wives up at the dairy house. Jeez Louise. As long as you didn't get Brigham's that was poisoned, you are probably pretty good. So <laughs> And uh, so it's a, it seems to be a pretty happy period. And then she meets this fellow actor. His name's James D. He's a little bit older and he's from England. So he's got... He this. was like Welsh. He's and he was a, the plasterer, right? He's he, got he's got a little accent. He's he was young. Actor. He was young. Yeah. I'm sure he had, he would, let's see, they got married in 63 and he arrived in 1860, I think. Yeah. 
So we'd only been in Utah a short time, fresh mm-hmm. off Welsh. Fresh off the boat here. And, you know, she's beautiful. She was apparently a pretty good actor. So, you know, you can see sparks fly. And uh, it's really interesting because I don't want to spoil the story too much. But so she writes Wife Number 19, the, the most famous book. But later, um, in when she's living in Nevada, she does kind of a revised second edition. And she totally writes this period of her life out of the narrative. That first marriage doesn't even happen. So, and uh, Chauncey was never a leader, but, you know, he knew Brigham and he was kind of on the inner circle. And so they were more or less upper crust in Salt Lake. And so they see her hanging around with this random kid, you know, off the boat and he's an actor. His parents don't ever love actors. What are they going to do in their lives? So, you know, they're trying to talk her out of it. And of course, that's just, but daddy, I loves him. So I, you can see where this is all going. You could probably tell yourself the rest of the story. April 4th, 1863. They're married in the endowment house by, by? <laughs> Brother Brigham. So um, they and then they move into a room in her, her dad's house there in town, which doesn't sound good, but he was pretty well off. So I imagine... It was okay. You know, you, you get married, it's a little apartment, that kind of thing. But Mr. Mister Fancy Actor James D. doesn't want to give up the swinging bachelor life yet. And so he's he's flirting with the ladies. You know, these these actors, they always want to go hang out. And, uh, and as I was thinking about it, you live in a society that prizes polygamy above absolutely everything else. That's what's going to get you into heaven. So what line do you really draw between flirty pre-affair behavior and courting a potential plural wife. This is something I don't think gets emphasized enough, especially talking about how, how hard it was for these women to live this, is if your husband is doing this, and he truly is courting a plural wife, what's the difference? And how can you ever be like, you can't do that? And he's like, I'm trying to get us into heaven, baby. Well, and what's so weird, you were talking about this too, the social scene, the social scene in Utah depended on they they really wanted to fleece the Gentiles. They There was this gold rush that was happening in California. And so all of these people were coming across through Salt Lake. And so Brigham Young realized that having socials and dances w- was a very lucrative business for Salt Lake City. So they were having dances all the time. And I think the rule was you just danced one dance with your wife, but then you could dance whoever. So who, I mean, it, this is just rife. It's with- all wide open. And and like I want to remind my listeners, when we compare polygamy now to polygamy then, uh, especially Mormon marriage now, we have this really pious example of Mormon marriage. So you're a 19-year-old Mormon girl. You get married to a guy who's 21, just off his mission, and you're married to him for the rest of your life, which is normal to you. But back then, the rest of your life was very short. People would die sooner. Uh, People would divorce all the time, as we're going to talk about. And partially because of this, you know, you have all these dances, you have men going off, bringing home new soldiers, (laughs) soldiers coming in, tempting the ladies, actors apparently causing problems. But she always, she also talks about his abuse, right? Like he's... Oh, yes. Yeah, it's going to get dark real fast. And and I I, not to to beat this drum too much, but, you know, now, you know, in a, a normal, quote unquote, Mormon marriage, your husband starts flirting with some lady, you can be like, hey, that's not okay. Back then, what are you going to tell him? Don't do that. Don't court a plural wife. Like, really, that's that's a terrible position to be in. And he gets it. And that's the thing is men understand this just as well. And so what does he do when she gets after him? He threatens to bring home a plural wife. Maybe even one of her friends. 
just twist the knife a little bit there. And before, you know, when I, I remember first reading this and I thought that no way, that's too vindictive. That just sounds like someone who's spurned, which I think was a product of sort of my own internalized misogynistic Mormon thinking, because now I've read plenty of accounts that this was not an uncommon thing. Polygamy was absolutely weaponized in unhappy marriages all the time. People know what buttons to push and, you know, they'll push them. And not surprisingly, Analyza is not a huge fan of where this is headed. There's lots of angry arguments. And so the solution is the age-old one. Well, let's have some kids and that'll fix everything. So they have two kids. He's not giving up the flirty flirts. And then it turns into physical abuse. So she is eight months pregnant and he smacks her. Pretty ugly scene. He, of course, says he'll change. Things are going to be different. And for a while they are until the baby's born. Um, Little guy arrives they get into another argument and then he chokes her almost till she's unconscious. I mean, it's it's really bad. And luckily her parents take her side. They don't be like, you know, maybe if you were nicer to him or something. Dad throws him out and um so 1865 just 2 years after they've been married, apparently with lots of encouraging from her mother, uh, Brigham Young talks to Elias Smith, who is the probate judge there in Salt Lake. And she's granted the divorce on the grounds of abusive behavior. So then she goes back and lives with her parents. She's got the two kids. I mean, she's still, she's only 21 at this point. Um, and talked about beautiful. She's an actress. I mean, she's got dudes after her all the time. So then two years later, 1867, the bishop in their ward has a chat with Brigham Young. And he tells him this dude in the ward wants to marry her. But he hesitates because of her divorce. So when you throw eternity into the mix, it makes it a little murkier. So this dude wants the bishop to check in with Brigham and make sure that Analyza is, quote, entirely free and clear from any obligation to D for time and eternity. So do we want to talk about our two boys? Sure. The yeah. Tuberculosis. Didn't they both die from that? <sighs> let me let me double check. But I thought if you're ever on Jeopardy and somebody dies in the 19th century and you don't know the cause, guess tuberculosis, you're probably going to be right. Yeah, I think, I think, yeah, uh, one of them died in 1861 and 1863. So that's in... Let's see, but she's got to have... James Edward D. Leonard Lewis D. Leonard, he's got to survive longer than that because she lives with him at the, with her, I mean, sorry, um, after um, she leaves... Oh, that's when he was born. He dies in 88. That's what it is. Yeah, so Leonard, for sure... So survive. both of her die, her boys get TB, and one dies in 1901, and the other one dies in 1888. Okay, okay. Yeah, sorry, I was looking at their birthdays. Okay. So the, the same day that this bishop, after the bishop has the talk with Brigham about all this, Brigham's like, I better get to work here. So he takes Analyza on another walk, and then he tells Chauncey, her father, that he wants to marry her. Let's get this, uh, let's get this other dude out of the way. So April 7th, 1868, she is sealed to Brigham Young in the endowment house with Heber Kimball performing the ceremony. That's got to be a, a fun day to remember. Um, do you, did you write down what she says about it? Her feelings towards Brigham? Uh, no, remind me. I No, I don't remember either. I was Because okay. I've been thinking back on this. And you and I talked about Lenora Taylor yeah. in a few episodes back, if you guys listen, the pressure that she gets for being selected by an apostle. I mean, if the prophet asks, you can't say no to Brigham Young. And her parents, they did a little bit better job taking her side when she was getting beaten. But 
This time, they, yeah, they are definitely pushing for it. However, there is a possible caveat to that we'll talk about in just a minute. And so this is Brigham's first marriage in three years. It's, um, it's fairly late. He's, let's see, he's what, 67, I think, at this time? She's 24, so that's, that's a fun dynamic there. So in the Young family, this was, this was interesting. Uh, Irving Wallace tells the story that when Susie Young Gates is writing Life Story of Brigham Young, um, she lets friends read her drafts, and her friends read what she'd written about Anne Eliza, and they're like, oh, you better take that out, you're going to get sued. And so she does, but she apparently forgets to take Analyza out of the index. But the family kept the early draft that still had the Analyza stuff in it. And so I'm reading this, and I'm like, okay, you can't wave the flag in front of me and expect me to not go after it. So there is a collection of Sousa's papers at the Church History Library, which has been digitized. And so I started digging through, and sure enough, there are a couple parts of the collection that are the Life Story of Brigham Young materials. But not all of the chapters are there. So it's it's chapter 34, Brigham Young and his family that would have had it in there. And that chapter, not in there. I was very bummed. That's something we can go hunting for. Yeah, I, I you know, it would, I guess it could certainly happen that the family could donate most of her stuff and keep some or burn something. Come on, we want the goods. She can't uh, sue you now. I was very, very disappointed that I couldn't find it, but it wasn't for lack of trying. I spent way too long trying to track that down. Um, however, what's interesting is uh, Irving Wallace does quote from the draft, which I thought was kind of fun. And according to Sousa, so, you know, this is a long time after the fact. This is the young family side of things, so take it for what you will. But she says that Analyza kind of pursued Brigham with the help of her mother, and it was, but it was, it was still more of like a financial security kind of thing not i love brigham so well and she has two young children at this time yep. and a failed marriage and those those stereotypes absolutely still applied back then to women well and you know it's it's tough for anyone to make a living at that point and yeah as a single mother that's that's rough maybe so. she just wanted white bread and peach sauce for Who breakfast doesn't want bread and butter and peach sauce <laughs> Next time I hear a bell, that's what I'm asking for, man. So there are there's two versions of how the first month of marriage went down. So in the book, she says she doesn't even see Brigham for a few weeks. But what's interesting is she apparently wrote a letter to a friend at the time and admitted she had, quote, considerable of his attention. His visits were frequent. I can see both. I can see Brigham being like, you know, thanks for the marriage. We'll see you later. But I can also see the other side of Brigham Young. He's like, I think it's time to go visit Sister Analyze Us. I mean, my opinion was if he liked you, he visited often. If he didn't, he ignored you absolutely completely. And he had no shame in that. He, Some of the wives said, like, you didn't even treat me like a real life wife. And he was like, boo-hoo. <laughs> Not a lot of middle ground either. No middle ground. There really wasn't. clear which one you were. He, he didn't have children with a lot of his wives. And the ones that he did, he saw them as family. Mm -hmm. That absolutely gave them status, but uh, women that he couldn't have children with, like uh, Eliza Snow and um, Amelia Folsom. Mm -hmm. Amelia Folsom becomes his his favorite later on, and she's beautiful, and he spent plenty of time with her. Even though she apparently couldn't have children, which I is know. Kind of an interesting one. And it, you know, it was also helped to to make it clear if you lived close to Brigham Young, it made it a lot easier to tell which of the two. Categories. And if he didn't like you, he sent you away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. 
Um, you sound like you need a cottage out in the middle of nowhere. So, yeah. You got this great home called the Forest Farmhouse. <laughs> Aren't there mice there? Oh, yeah, a lot of them. That's what you're eating for dinner. So <laughs> While uh, you make our dinner. Yeah. Um, so, Analyza apparently didn't want to live in the lighthouse, which I thought was interesting. So, uh, Brigham has a cottage built for her, and her mom lives with her. But it was not great. Apparently, they got kind of cast off furniture and stuff that wasn't quite Lion House quality. Cast, you know, maybe factory second rolls there. They weren't quite good enough to be in the Lion House, so they got them. 1872, so four years after they've been married, she's reaching the end of her patience here. And she meets this Methodist minister. So what happens is she would take in boarders to support herself. Really common theme with plural wives. That was, I would say that was probably the most common way they made a living, which uh, created some interesting situations for some of them. So she starts talking to this minister, and that's kind of where she starts to make this transition, because she starts to realize, hmm, there's something outside of Mormonism. I'm not super happy. Maybe something needs to change here. Well, so when I've been analyzing her exit narrative, because like I said, I've, I've, read hundreds and hundreds thousands of accent and narratives talk to plenty yeah and you start to see themes in it and i think the fact that she was engaged in the arts early on gave her a way to look at something creatively in a different way yeah yeah, yeah. and then like you said i think this minister is so important because it's the first time she really is exposed to kindness from the outside world not oh they're not bad yeah not like rowdiness or whatever and yeah. i think that that's an important part of what what is to follow for her yeah then the real one is uh, another border is a judge non-mormon again and they become really good friends he's there with his wife and they're constantly talking to her they realize she's not happy and so he goes to california for a business trip and he says all right by the time i come back you need to make a decision and then <laughs> this is one of my favorite stories she tells while well, this judge is gone the ward teachers visit and come in and Sister Young, do you enjoy the spirit of our religion? Is this the catechisms they give her? No, sir, I do not. <laughs> and they're like, wait, that's not the answer. The paper says you're supposed to say yes. <laughs> you're Brigham's wife. Yeah. What? So uh, the suggestion is a very 19th century suggestion. One that you don't get today is you need to be rebaptized. So this is another fascinating story because, again, rebaptism, not a thing anymore. Then, super common. Thing. Unless you're FLDS, they still okay, do it. that's true. Yeah, yeah. If you're LDS, not yeah. thing. Yes, that is a good point. So she goes to the endowment house, scene of her marriages. So not great memories there. And remember, rebaptisms. This is all very accurate and consistent with the Mormon Reformation. So they they start sending these home teachers, these ward teachers, mm -hmm. to elders to come to your house to make sure you're loyal and clean. And if not, they send you to get rebaptized. The endowment or the baptismal font. Uh, was doing a lot of rebaptisms. It was kind of a business, too, of repentance. In my big fat Greek wedding, remind me, what is it they spray? Anything that's wrong? Lysol. Lys <laughs> Windex. 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 Yeah, what it, spray Windex. What's wrong with you? You need to be rebaptized. Health, you arrived in the valley, married, endowed. But not if you're pregnant or on your period. Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. Having a bad day at work. I mean, honestly, people were rebaptized many times throughout their life. So anyway, she shows up there. Not a great experience. And, and again, Mormons, you're going to listen to this and you're like, yeah, I can see this. No one takes it seriously when she's there. They kind of mumble. They're just going through the, the routine. 
whole thing falls flat. She resolves going out the door that, quote, since everything was done in such a businesslike manner, with an utter absence of anything of a devotional nature, that I was thoroughly disgusted and made no further effort to believe in Mormonism or its ordinances. So that's it. That's the breaking point. So now what? She's like, well, what if we really try to make the boarding house go? So she puts a lot of focus and attention into it. She starts to, it works. She gets a bunch of boarders in there. So she needs a bigger stove. <sighs> Fine, I'll go talk to Brigham. So she goes, wanders down to his office, says, can I have a bigger stove so I can support myself? Brigham, in one of his characteristic good mood, replies, if you want a cooking stove, you'll get it yourself. I put you into a good house, and you must see to the rest. I cannot afford to have so many people calling on me for every little thing they happen to think they want. Great husband material right there. <sighs> how, you know, when I picture him, like, bragging over the pulpit about how many wives, like, the sands of the sea he's going to have, I'm like, dude, you can't even handle the ones you have. Your wives don't like you. They don't like you. They're leaving you. They're leaving the faith. And... Just buy her a damn stove. Yeah. Even Brigham, I think later in life, if he could look back and be like, I should have bought this stove. I should have bought this stove. I mean, how much is a stove anyways? Jeez. So that's that's the straw that breaks the Kirillam's back. She's done. She's she's done. So talks to this judge. And the, this was interesting, too, is the strategy. So behind the scenes, she's starting to quietly gather support. So she's got this judge very influential James McKean, who is a federal appointed judge, will become really important in the story. This minister, so all these non-Mormon friendly people in her life have her back, and so they start kind of making plans. Now, what's interesting is one of these dudes, she's later accused of an affair with him. So, scandal will follow her throughout her life. But I will say also, she was a beautiful woman, and I feel like... She's we, not happy. She's not happy. And I think that there was a lot of sexism. There's certainly a lot of sexism in the Mormon historical community about her now. I'm sure that it, that, that was weaponized against her. Oh, rumors. Mm -hmm. I've, yeah, rumors would have been flying about her probably long before she even starts to pick up on him, I'm, I would bet. So then uh, the, by the next year, uh, you know, she's under all this stress. It starts to become physical ailments. <laughs> Uh, of course, because it's the Victorian era, she's suffering from, quote, diseases peculiar to females, which causes her much pain and her, has pain in her back, as also a bearing down pain causing her to become very nervous. Every woman in, in Victorian world is how this is how they're described, right? They're always nervous. Take her to the mental hospital Female and give her the troubles. hose. Yeah. yeah. Give her some, some pills for woman troubles and will cure her. So then, middle of the year, July 1873, she moves all of her stuff out in the middle of the night, the way she, uh, this big wagon shows up, they take everything out, and she sells it at auction. She gets $380. And I was like, that's not very much, but I'm like, wait a minute, that's, that's 19th century, that's a decent amount of money. But she's like, no, I'm not, we're not doing $380. So she applies for a civil divorce, not a church one, and she wants $1,000 a month alimony, $20,000 in legal fees, and $200,000 from Brigham Young's future estate. She's not screwing around. It's like, that's impressive. That's... I I always think about that because it's so ambitious. Like nobody nobody did that. What, was this the influence of people on the outside being like, "Dude, take them for everything you've got"? Or do you think it was just like this this rage inside of her that's like, "I know you're good for it. 
I, there's a couple things that could be behind it. I wouldn't be surprised if this federal judge, James McKean, is uh, whispering in her ear during a lot of these proceedings because uh, he and Brigham were not good pals. Yeah, so. these people did have an agenda against Mormonism for sure. Yes. Um, and just as a reminder at this point, she's only 29. Like, I, I kept having to remind myself at all these points during her story, she's so young and she's going through all this crazy crap. So, um, so she takes her stuff, sells it, and then she moves into the Walker house just for location there. So that was on Main Street. Um, if you ever went to the old Sam Weller store or when Eborn took it over, that building, the David Keith building there, that's what was built over where the Walker house was. And the way that her her quarters there were described, again, super Victorian. She has a double room suite. She has a chaise long. She has this marble-topped bureau, a little table, solid black walnut chairs, a sewing machine, and her trunk. You can picture her chilling in there. And her, Something straight out of a Western movie. I love yeah, it. Yeah, 87 layers in the summer sewing on her sewing machine and this is this is where I, we were talking about her kids before so she has leonard with her and so she paints this incredible scene of that first night in the walker house she puts leonard to bed and then she just has this mental breakdown she starts thinking about it she's you know she's she's not just breaking with brigham it's a break with mormonism it's a break with her family I mean, it's her entire world. Yeah, it's a complete rupture. I mean, if people think it's hard to leave Mormonism now, your whole economic system was dependent. I mean, and not just that, like even the FLDS, who I would say it's very similar, where you are shunned, you lose everything, whatever, when you leave. At least in the FLDS, we have modern roads and transportation where you can literally leave easier. It was hard to leave. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's a, clearly a very traumatic experience for it. It just bleeds through in her writing. So Brigham's response, he's like, well, this marriage wasn't legal in the first place, so I don't owe you anything. Okay, back to Judge James McKean. He later says any marriage, quote, according to the forms of the church of which Brigham Young is the head, is a lawful and valid marriage. Nice try. And uh, so the, the lawsuit, though, gets quashed twice by other federal judges due to technicalities. So we got to figure out some sort of resolution. So Brigham Young's brother-in-law, Hiram Clausen, is chosen to be the liaison. Brigham had all sorts of troubleshooters. So he goes and talks to Analyza, and the uh, the proposal is, what about if it's a divorce, and then she gets $15,000? <laughs> I love this too. She then writes a letter to Brigham Young, says, you have 24 hours to accept my offer. And then she, she threatens, quote, she has, quote, stronger inducements to go before the Eastern public and in person acquaint them with my wrongs. <laughs> she knew what was up. She uh, she was no dummy. And uh, obviously, this is going to be big news. Brigham Young's wife is not just leaving him. She's threatening to go public with it. The, the always entertaining Tribune called her the insubordinate rib of the prophet. <laughs> Those newspaper guys, man, they... They were they were funny dudes. So she apparently gets an offer from P.T. Barnum to join his group. Um, but she ends up going with what's called the Lyceum Bureau based out of Boston. And so she starts doing this series of tours throughout the Intermountain West. So she goes to Denver, goes to Montana. And uh, Brigham Young's biographer, John Turner, noted that she, quote, told audiences about the Mormon endowment ceremony, provided a list of Young's wives, and exhaustively denounced her husband's miserliness. So when she's in Denver, she thunders the quote, 
The things which I suffered opened my eyes to the hollowness of Brigham Young's pretensions to sanctity of character and unveiled the system of which he was the head and I one of the many victims. I would guess her lectures would have been pretty entertaining. And I'm sure that people ate them up at this time because they were looking for Mormons as the enemy. <laughs> yeah. So she oh, absolutely yes. was the star of this show. Well, you just listed, A wife of Brigham? The endowment. She's naming names. I mean, yeah, that tickets would have been, it would have gone quick. So, but what's interesting is that apparently during these lectures, as she's going on tour, this is where she's working on her material that becomes the book. So this is where the book starts. And I thought about it, I was like, that's sort of how Bennett did it too. You know, he does the letters to the paper, but then he starts doing this lecture tour. And uh, so she, maybe she learned from our dear departed babes in Toyland villain here. And uh, I was thinking about it. If she ever finds a DeLorean and, and comes to the present here, she'd get a reality show. Like, <laughs> she, Yeah, she would get a book deal you again. On, you put her on TLC? Her show's called Save from the Line of the Lord's Mouth. I would watch it. It's on Thursdays at 7. It's yeah. on right after my 700-pound gerbil. DVR the oh. heck out of that. Now, I mean, you can in some ways, it seems like this foreign country, but it's like, no, 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 no. This would play out very easily in, in today so so then in 1874 george q cannon um back in washington dc he's the territorial representative back there and she's there for a week and he said she quote lobbied at the capitol every day and she's lecturing there and <laughs> she's throwing shade at cannon and his family so she you know she's she's spilling the tea on these other mormons Cannon tries to play it off, and he writes back to Brigham Young that he'd listened to one of her lectures and said, quote, When a drunkard and a whore unite, the product should be filthy. Wow. This is a good line. That, that one made me laugh. So, But despite Cannon being pretty, you know, cavalier about it all, she does seem to be fairly influential in getting the Poland Act passed that year. So they're ramping up the, the legislation. This was the first thing that had been passed since the Morrill Act under Lincoln, which was not, they didn't even attempt to enforce that. So this is the first time that the government is, is getting serious, and she's part of it. And uh, one of the elements of the Poland Act is something that you love. What this would do would take the power out of the probate courts, because that was that's how they did everything. And what that means is Mormons were running the probate court, which means it was Mormon law. So The judge when, up in Ogden is Apostle Franklin Richards. Not an accident. <laughs> not an accident. You you have a crime. You go to a bishop's court, essentially. You're not going to an actual... If it does go to civil court, Apostle Richards will take care of you. So you, you are under Mormon rule. It's very... I mean, it was shocking to me when I met FLDS people and you would hear stories of like women who went to the police to report a rape from a family member and the police would send them back to their bishop to repent. This is exactly the kind of stuff that was going on in Frontier, Utah. I mean, but the thing was, is they had their bases covered because even if it does go civil, they can still take care of it. And, you know, if the if and Washington... who were the Salt Lake policemen, they were Mormons. Yeah, Brigham Young Hamptons, the police chief. So and if and if Washington gets mad, be like, they were elected. And... Speaking of Hampton, even if you were busted out of jail by vigilantes, the vigilantes were uh, Porter Rockwell, Mormons, doing busting you out of jail illegally on behalf of Brigham Young. So mm -hmm. you, yeah, so this was a big deal, and I wish uh, it would have been better accomplished. 
And if and if the guys on the ground in Salt Lake start complaining too much, they get run out of town. So yeah, it's it's if you don't like what's happening, you don't have a lot of options. That's why I think it took great courage for her to be as brave as she was. Oh, this was this was ugly. I mean, this was mudslinging. This was her in the in the uh, in the limelight, and so thanks to the Poland Act being passed, it meant that her divorce lawsuit would now be heard in federal court under James McKean, the guy who had pushed her to file the lawsuit in the first place. And, you know, this is terrible news for Brigham Young because he can kind of see what's going on. So step one, October 1874, she's excommunicated. Kind of surprising it took him that long. but um, And then the next year, it finally comes to trial. So Brigham is ordered to pay $500 a month allowance for alimony. And if you're like, okay, that's not that much. That's like 12 grand a month. That's that's a healthy amount of dollars, and then three thousand dollars in court costs, which is like seventy two thousand. And this is a man that wouldn't even give her a stove. Like you know, he hated this. Oh, it's gonna get better. Yeah, um, Brigham is like, no, screw you. I'm Brigham Young. I'm not paying anything. He's fined twenty five dollars, and he's sentenced to one day in prison. And if you're feeling sad for him, don't cry for Brigham, Argentina. He takes counselor Daniel Wells. He takes his his money guy friend, William Rossiter. And then he takes his nephew and doctor, Seymour Young, with him. So Yeah, this is very much like uh, the Colombian drug lord Pablo Escobar and his like fancy mobster yeah, prison. No one's going to shiv the, the line <laughs> of the lord in prison. He's got like a circle of dudes around him. We don't have any word whether anyone danced outside the jail that night, though. So it wasn't quite Keith Raniere level yet. And, uh, yeah, Brigham was like, no, 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 But no, they no. did play a, an absurd amount of volleyball in, in Yeah, oh, Brigham, Brigham could spike, man. He <laughs> set him a pipe on the back row. Dude, that guy could lay it down. Okay, we're kidding, just in case anyone, like, quotes that on Reddit or something. Brigham Young did not play volleyball, to my knowledge. It's schlubby-looking dudes. They love to play volleyball with the ladies, so. Um, Brigham is like, I'll pay the court costs, yeah. The alimony? No, no, I don't care. I will not pay that. And what's interesting is then the president of the U.S., Ulysses Grant, then pulls McKean out of his judgeship. And, you know, Mormons are like, yes, we got rid of that guy. It's all going to be better. No, but so then later that year, Brigham is still like, no, I'm not paying alimony. So he's put on house arrest. There's a new acting chief judge. And then the next guy in the chair reverses it and releases Brigham. And, you know, so no longer on house arrest. And you have to think the wives are like, good. Get him out of the house once in a while. But then another chief justice is installed. I mean, there was a revolving door in the early 1870s. Back on the History Podcast, we will have lots to say about that. That's a period that really, uh, the 1870s, who talks about the 1870s? And they're so interesting. Holy crap, a lot of stuff is going on. So, so this guy reduces the alimony, but then he seizes some of Brigham Young's property to pay it. And uh, Brigham's like, no. No, 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 no. He finally says, I will spend the remainder of my days in prison before I will pay them one cent. Just buy the stove, guy. Just just buy the stove. You should have bought the stove. And uh, so then he's like, well, let's go back to the original argument. The marriage wasn't legal in the first place, and he wins. Lawsuit is dismissed. So he won, sort of. For now. For now. And uh, this was kind of fun, too. John Turner said Annaliza was, quote, the most formidable female antagonist Brigham Young ever encountered. Oh, and you could tell he hated it. I mean, he was humiliated already in Massachusetts. Like we. Well, that's what I was going to say. I was like, Augusta Adams has to hear that and be like, hold my stars for real, dude. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 
she yeah, didn't but, ask to be sealed to Jesus. Well, and then, you know, the whole Martha Brotherton thing, like he he did not like to be told no, let's put it that By way. By anyone, definitely not the ladies. Definitely not, a, especially not a woman that he thought he, you know, took a charitable marriage upon, you know, he I'm sure he told himself that. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, that's the thing is we don't get this kind of stuff in their writings right Bring the them pages are missing talking. send them find them family members and dig them up that's the thing is but you know we we know enough things about brigham young and his relationships that we can make some fairly educated guesses. and his actions and his actions yeah speaking of there's an there's a just a story just like that so when she's at the theater this uh this lady comes in and brigham is smitten smitten but it uh, doesn't work out but yeah after she dies immediately has her sealed to him so brigham will win in the eternities um back to the so back to the title of the book um it's it's one of those things that you know that that kind of person you always interact with they're like well actually she wasn't the 19th wife it's like really that's your criticism it's true she was not um, but to be fair like we like we said they didn't know themselves how many wives there no, were because if you asked brigham how many wives he had he did he wouldn't have been able to give it's you not like he, brigham young was the type to gather them all together in the same room because first of all he didn't like all of them he did marry yeah. some as favors and as mm -hmm. for their property and he didn't get them all together so it's not like you could count them and if you could in the lion house women were coming and going you didn't know who had left him who had run off it was very hard to tell historians still struggle well when irving wallace writes her biography the title of it is the 27th wife she is Wrong again <laughs> also not the 27th wife <laughs> So there's a really interesting article by Jeff Johnson in uh, Dialogue. And Jeff has probably come the closest to doing a Todd Compton treatment of Brigham Young's wives. Um, it's worth checking out. Yeah. I mean, I, I reread it for to prepare for this. And he does definitely have a bias against some of her, the things she says. But his history is pretty solid. Yeah. And so he, his argument is she's probably wife number 52. But that's that, and that was the purpose of the article: is what criteria do you use? What counts as white? So it's it's a it's a pretty interesting article. What was fun is um, he pointed out that Brigham Young's family, much much later on, publishes this little booklet that claimed that there were twenty seven wives, and all along, you know, she along with probably everyone else thought that she was the last wife, and so that's almost certainly where Irving Wallace got the title and he tells this super interesting story about he comes to utah to research you know <laughs> he's this this east coast dude who likes to write about um the kinky stuff his books are all about you know wonky sexual practice things and i'm like hmm wonder why he got this story yeah so exactly. yeah he he i'm guessing that guy would have been really a fun dude to talk to but so if yeah. you're if you're a dude <laughs> not if you're a lady why? End up in one of his books. Just because uh, his language is dripping with misogyny in cases? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and she was not the last wife. Um, he, as, as far as we can tell, Brigham Young married three more wives after her. And the last one was Hannah Tapfield King, which mm. I had forgotten. So um, another fascinating lady. Which we've talked about on the podcast. Which we have talked about before. Yeah, yeah. Her account of the Reformation particularly is excellent. And also her struggling to reconcile polygamy in her head very interesting so you know she she continues to speak out she ends up publishing a revised edition of her yeah uh, book in 1908 and Which never shows up i started thinking about that i'm like i don't i don't think i've ever seen a copy of that around so you know wife number 19 doesn't show up a lot but sometimes 
Yeah, because that's the thing. You remember, she's so young when she um, divorces Brigham Young and is done with Mormonism. She has a... It's sort of like Emma. It's like, you know, there's a lot of life left to be lived after after all this craziness, so... I, I feel like I saw somewhere, and I'll have to look and see maybe later, that he got his revenge on, you know, reinstating her. This would surprise me 0%, so... But she did, she did kind of move around a lot, and then she ends up dying in... She moves to Sparks, Nevada. Yeah. And then I think she's in Nevada when she publishes that. Yeah, she that is in Nevada. And then she yeah. gets pneumonia and she dies um, in 1917. And she's buried in the Mountain View Cemetery in Reno, Nevada. So if you're in the Reno area. I, I thought that would be that would be a fun place to, to visit. So, yeah, that's and um, yeah, I, I we haven't really seen it yet. But I, I think we do need a much better reevaluation of I think like fan, the Stenhouses, Fanny's writings. I think those have kind of been rehabilitated a little more but not her you know she is totally dismissed yeah i mean she was seen as a traitor to her people to her family in in a very very public way and we see this with the flds women too who i mean what's interesting is we've met a lot of the people who've written these exposés on warren jeffs or ruling jeffs or whatever and they are dismissed categorically in their communities and now that their communities have all left the faith too and don't believe in the prophets those biases still kind of linger yeah they just, th- there's a bitterness about anyone that sort of turns and speaks the truth in a community where you're just to keep quiet about that. Mind your business, Brigham said. Yep. Follow the Mormon creed, Analyza. Well, do you have anything else to say? No, that's uh, her life. She, she converted, she was a Christian scientist and a Methodist. She was a Methodist and then a Christian scientist. Married a rich guy, then divorced. Yeah. Her, the she- rest of her life was not particularly happy Uh, and we're going to talk more about the book with hopefully with christina rosetti so anything else you want to say about it i don't think so she was fun to read that's uh, she deserves 27th wife is interesting and it's definitely worth reading but you know it is old and yeah he definitely he had a type of book he wrote so (laughs) um but what was so interesting is he talks about coming to salt lake and meeting some high-ranking Mormon official that talked to him. I have to say, he did do some really interesting research. Like, he talked to, he got connected with some some helpful people. But I was so fascinated. Like, who is this guy showing him around Salt Lake? And so I asked um, Artis Partial if she knew, because if anyone would know that story, it's Artis. And sadly, she hadn't heard of it. So, oh, interesting. If you ever know who it was that toured him around Salt Lake and yeah, showed him let, sources, let us know. Yeah, I'd like because there's got to be some letters or something that's that's around. But yes, a fascinating life, and uh, she really had some impact. Um, that's her uh, her role in uh, having the Poland Act passed. I don't think is ever talked about. So no, and that's a, that's an important part of uh, Mormon polygamy history, Western history. Yeah, and read determining and defining wife, the Brigham Young households yeah. by Jeffrey Ogden Johnson, because that's where he sort of goes into it. Yeah, very interesting article. All right, well, thanks, Brian. And if you like what you're hearing, check more out at the Mormon Sunstone Mormon History Podcast. Almost get, didn't get the name of our podcast right. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.